0: And good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. This is the last chapter of the Bible. And today we are considering the last passage of the chapter. So this will conclude, Lord willing, it will conclude our series through this book. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1042. 1042. Today, I'm sharing part two of the message I began last Sunday, which was entitled, Surely He is Coming Soon. We'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we will consider this text together. Let's bow together now. Father, we thank you so much for a beautiful Sunday morning. Thank you for all of the people that you have gathered to worship together this Sunday. Lord, we trust that The worship we have offered you thus far has been pleasing to you, that it has been a source of delight. And now as we study your word, we pray that your spirit would come, that he would minister to our spirits, that you would use this service to impress upon us all the lessons that we have learned from our entire walk through this last book of our Bibles. Help us to see, Lord, how the the information that we have learned in this book has a direct application to our lives in the here and now. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So for 13 months, we've been studying this book together. And from the book, we've learned three critical truths. Number one, that God has a comprehensive plan for the future of our world. Number two, that his plan centers on the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And number three, our Lord's return could occur at any time. It could occur at any time. And friends, these truths have profound implications for each of our lives. And that's why we have this final section of Revelation. It actually begins in verse 6 of chapter 22, runs all the way to the end of the book. We began looking at this section last Sunday. We'll conclude it today. But this section is dedicated to showing us how the truths that we've learned together have a direct impact, or at least ought to have a direct impact, on our lives. Last Sunday we saw that our Lord's imminent return means that we should take hold of Christ in faith. It also means that we should worship Christ as our coming King. And it means that we should declare Christ to others. And it means that we should take our stand with Christ. Now we're going to finish our walk through these final verses. We have five more application points to consider. And So without further ado, let's jump right in. From verses 12 through 15, we learn this, that in light of our Lord's imminent return, we should repent of all sin. We should repent of all sin. Let's let's look at this together, beginning in verse 12. Here we have our Lord Jesus speaking to us once again. And he says, behold, I am coming soon. So once more, our Lord wants to impress upon us the truth of this, that he is coming back and that his coming will set into motion all of those events which will bring our world to a satisfying conclusion. He is coming again. And he says that when he comes, he will bring his recompense with him to repay each one for what he has done. So he's not going to come the second time the way he came the first time. He's not coming as a baby in a manger. He's not coming in humility. He's not going to come to suffer mistreatment at the hands of sinners. He's not going to come to die again. No, when he comes this next time, it'll be in power and glory. He will come in his role as a king and a judge, and he will bring his recompense with him. He will judge the living and the dead with perfect judgment. What gives him the authority to exercise his judgments? Well, verse 13, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is what gives him the authority. He is the eternal Son of God, robed in human flesh. He's the one that God has appointed to be the judge and the king of all people. So he is coming again. He is coming to bring his righteous judgments. And he is qualified to do this because he is the Alpha and the Omega. And so now we come to the application, verse 14. It says, Therefore, blessed are those who wash their robes. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Now, friends, this is a description of repentance. Of repentance. See, friends, apart from Christ, the Scriptures say that all of us, all of us are unclean. We all have a, a sinful nature. We've had it from the, the moment of our conception. And it's out of this sinful nature that we do things that we ought not to do, and it's why we don't do things that we should be doing. And it, takes no ple- it gives me no pleasure To share this truth, I'm sure there's no pleasure in hearing it, but it is what the Scriptures teach about the human condition, that every last one of us comes into the world in a fallen state. We have this sin nature, and this sin nature renders us all from birth morally and spiritually unclean in the eyes of God. The Scriptures are filled with verses affirming this State, For example, Isaiah 64, verses 5 and 6 say, We have sinned. We have been in sin for a long time. We've become like one who is unclean. There, there's that, that metaphor again. We become like one who's unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So in, in the eyes of God, even our so-called righteous deeds... Even these are looked upon by God as unclean. And how could that be? Well, it's because we're not motivated to do these righteous deeds out of our love for God, out of our faith in Him. We're not doing them because we're clinging to His His promises in Christ. No, we have other motives for doing good things. So not even these have any meritorious value in the eyes of God. But friends, the great news is that we can be washed. We who are unclean in God's eyes can be rendered clean in His sight. We can even be looked upon as righteous by God. Scriptures give us many examples of this happening, of the unclean becoming clean in God's eyes. For example, we have the congregation in the ancient city of Corinth. The Apostle Paul said this to that that group. He says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says, that's not... The case with you. He says, you were washed. You were sanctified. That means you were made holy in God's sight. And you were justified. That means you were declared righteous in his sight. Justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So friends, by by nature, we are unclean in God's eyes. Not because God made us this way, but because we are in a fallen state due to sin. And yet, God has provided a way for us to be rendered clean, to be, to be declared righteous. And the instrument that God has appointed for this great change is repentance. Or we could call it believing repentance or repentant faith. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what repentance is in our day, and so allow me to take a moment to clarify the definition. First, let's talk about what repentance is not, okay? Repentance is not the same thing as penance. It's not the same thing as penance, okay? You understand that penance is actually a Roman Catholic doctrine, which teaches that we can partially make up for our sinful deeds by doing good deeds. And so, if, if you have committed a sin in this teaching, you would go to a priest, confess that sin, and then the priest would assign you good works. And you would perform those good works in the hope that those good works would partially atone for the sins you just confessed. Well, friends, repentance is not this. It is not penance. In fact, the scriptures tell us that that there is no good deed that we can do to somehow cancel out or make up for a a bad deed. Those of you in law enforcement understand this, can you imagine a criminal standing before a judge and, and saying, well, judge, I know I stole that car off the lot, but you should let me go because an hour after I did that, I actually helped a little old lady cross the street. And so you see, my good deed really ought to compensate for my bad deed, and I'm really innocent now, let me go. Well, you understand it doesn't work that way, right? The judge will will look at that person and say, you know, it was a really nice thing of you to help that little old lady walk the street, walk across the street, but you still stole that car, and you've still got to pay for that stolen vehicle. You see, our good deeds cannot cancel out the bad deeds, or what we owe for those bad deeds. Penance is not a biblical concept. What we are talking about here is repentance. Repentance. And here's how how our church's confession of faith defines repentance. It's a mouthful, so I'll share it and then I'll explain it. It says repentance is an evangelical grace, whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evil of his sin, does, by faith in Christ, humble himself for it with godly sorrow, praying to God for pardon and strength of grace, with a purpose and endeavor by the supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. I told you it was a mouthful. But what it's saying is this, that true biblical repentance is when God does a work in my heart... Such that my attitude toward my sinful state is altered. So that now, I no longer take delight in sinful deeds. And I, I, no, longer, I no longer am indifferent to the reality of God and who He is and what He wants for me. I'm no longer indifferent to those things. Instead, it's just the reverse. I now have a, a sorrow in my heart for for my sins. And, and it breaks my heart to know that I'm alienated from God because of these sins. And in repentance, I now have a, a newfound desire to live for God. It's, it's, a new, it's a new understanding of Christ. That Christ is the Son of God who came and lived a perfect life, something that I've not done. And that He went to a cross to make an all-sufficient atonement for my sins, that He paid the penalty that I was to pay. He did it for me. And that if I will just cling to Christ in faith, that God will cancel out my record of sin. Repentance is a change of heart with regard to my view of God, my view of sin. I'm turning away from a life without God and I'm turning to a life with God. A life that that now wants to follow hard after Him and do His will. Repentance is about asking God To forgive us for the life that we lived apart from Him. And to now take us as His child. That's repentance. It's a heart change. It's a heart change. Which will then issue in a new way of living. When we come to God in repentant faith, we are justified by God. That means He no longer looks at us as unclean. He looks at us as holy, righteous. He looks at us the same way he looks at his son Jesus, perfect, spotless, because the righteousness of Christ is now the lens through which he views us. And the penalty that Christ endured for sin is counted as ours. That's repentance. In the great blessing of repentance, at the end of verse 14, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that is, blessed are those who come to God in repentance, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Blessed or happy are the repentant, for it is they who shall enter the everlasting kingdom of God. They shall eat the fruit of the tree of everlasting life. They shall pass through the gates of the city, the New Jerusalem. This is the great gospel blessing of repentance. And you see, my friends, the kingdom of God is a kingdom for the repentant and for them alone. Verse 15 says, outside, that means locked out of that kingdom are the dogs. Now, you know what dogs are like, they're disgusting. Forgive me for the mental picture, but dogs will vomit and then lap it back up. They're nasty. Well, that's the Scripture's picture of the unrepentant soul. It's someone who revels in their sin, and they keep going back to it, no matter how bad it is. Outside are the dogs. And the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers and idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. You see, the kingdom of God is for the repentant, and for them alone. And so, my friend, in light of the imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ, in light of the the kingdom that is there for the taking, in light of the hell that is there to lose, will you acknowledge the reality of your own sinful nature? Will you understand that apart from Christ, even your so-called righteous deeds are not looked upon as righteous by God? That even those are looked upon as unclean because they're not motivated by a heart of faith. And will you heed the words of 1 John 3, 3, which says everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Will you make a turnabout today, if you haven't already, a turnabout with regard to the direction that your life is heading in, Maybe right now you're on a trajectory away from God, away from Christ. A life of living as your own king. A life that will lead to ruin in the end. You make a turnabout, no longer live that way, but now live for God. Acknowledge his son as the true king. Place the crown upon his son's head. Ask him to forgive you for sins committed. Express your desire now. To live for him. This is what we must do in light of our Lord's coming. Well, now moving to verses 16 and 17, we find another action step. Friends, in light of our Lord's soon return, we should also pray to Christ. We should pray to Christ. Look at verse 16 with me. Again, Jesus speaks. And he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Jesus is explaining to us how we came to receive the book of Revelation. He's the source of the information. He communicated it to an angel, who in turn communicated it to the apostle John. John wrote it all down, and now we're reading it. That's how this book came to us. Then Jesus says this about himself. He says, I am the root or the shoot, and the descendant of David, meaning, I am the promised Messiah. It's me. And then he adds, and the bright morning star, meaning, he is the one who shines God's light into the world of darkness. This is who Jesus is. Alpha and Omega, first and last, beginning and end, the promised Messiah, the shiner of God's light. In response, verse 17, the spirit and the bride, that's the church, the spirit and the church say, come, that's a prayer, come. And let the one who hears this message say, come. And then down to verse 20, he who testifies to these things, that's Jesus, says, surely I am coming soon. And the reply from us, amen, come, Lord Jesus. So you can see here that another appropriate response To the truth of our Lord's soon return is to pray to him and say, yes, Jesus, come. We want you to come. Come now. Come today. Don't delay your coming any longer. See, if you're a disciple of Christ, the promise of his coming should so stir you that you cannot help but pray to him and plead with him to hasten his return. And several weeks ago, someone asked me a very thoughtful question. They said, Pastor, when we pray for Christ to come now rather than to wait, doesn't that mean we're also praying for Him to bring the plagues of revelation? Doesn't that mean that we're praying for God to, to bring judgments? And Doesn't that mean praying for a lot of ugly things? Well, that's true. That's true. It is a prayer for all of that too, but that's a good thing to pray for. And I say that because our Lord Jesus taught us to pray that way. Think again of the Lord's Prayer from the Sermon on the Mount. We pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the next request, And give us this day our daily bread. So this is to be a daily prayer. Jesus taught us to pray it. Every morning we wake up, Lord, hallowed be your name, meaning you are holy. May everyone see you as holy. And may you send your son. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. And then afterwards, God, if, if it is not your will that your son come back today, then would you please give me the food I will need to live out the next 24 hours. And then the next morning we wake up and do the very same thing. God, you are holy. May all regard you as holy. Send your son. Bring your kingdom. But if it's not your will today, then please provide me with the food I need for today so that I can fulfill what you do have for me to do. And the morning after that, the same thing again. We are called to pray for this over and over again. And understand when we pray this prayer. Yes, we are asking Christ to come as a king and a judge. But first and foremost, we are praying for him to come as a savior. Because that's what the prayer, God, your kingdom come, is all about. It's a prayer that says, God, send your son back. And save all of your people. We know that God has a book of life and there are countless millions and billions of names in there. And we know that so many of them have not yet come to faith in Christ. We know they must before he returns. And so that prayer, Christ, come back and prepare your kingdom, it's a prayer that God would save every last person in the book of life and that he wouldn't wait any longer to do it, but that he would do it right now, right away. And it's a prayer that those who are already children of God, that they would no longer have to endure persecution and suffering and misery and martyrdom. It's a prayer that they could be released from their prisons, released from their torturers, and be finally given their new resurrection bodies and to experience the glories of the kingdom. This is a prayer for salvation. It's a prayer for the rescue of Christ's church. And it's a prayer that God would hasten the end of all the evil in this world. And this is why we want God to come in judgment. It's because the alternative is to have an unending it's to have unending misery in the world. If he doesn't come today, it means that the evil of this world are going to have another day to do their evil. It's another day of suffering and bloodshed and and death. Wouldn't you rather Christ come now, right away, begin his final judgments, and it can all be over? and not have to wait years or centuries or millennia to see it go away. And so we pray to Christ. We pray, Christ, will you come today? Now, come now, complete your salvation and complete your judgments and usher us in to your everlasting kingdom where there is no longer any suffering or death, where there are no tears, where it's only joy forever and ever. And so, yes, we ought to pray for him to come. Christian, do you long for his appearing? Then pray for it. Pray for it. Make it one of your daily prayers. Just imagine if a hundred million Christians around this world began praying that prayer every single day. And friends, I believe God would be pleased to answer that prayer, and He would hasten His Son's return, because God is pleased to use the prayers of His people to accomplish His good purposes in this world. And so let us pray that our Lord might come. Well, we see another godly response here, verse 17b. Second part of the verse. Friends, in light of our Lord's appearing, his soon return, we should also draw near to him. We should draw near to him. Verse 17 reads, The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. And it says, Let the one who is thirsty come. Now it's talking to us. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life Without price. What we have here is another gospel invitation. These have been riddled throughout the book of Revelation. We are are told, the Lord is coming. And then right after that is followed up. If you want that, then take it, (laughs) become his child. This is another gospel invitation. Friend, do you thirst for the living water? Then come, slake your thirst. Drink deeply of the water of everlasting life. You have heard the gospel many times. Have you responded to the gospel? You know who Jesus is. You know what he has done for you. You know about his sinless life. You know about his death on the cross, that substitutionary, sin-bearing sacrifice on the cross. You know that if you will approach Him with believing repentance or repentant faith, that all of your uncleanness will be washed away and you will stand righteous in His sight. You will be His child. His kingdom will be your inheritance. You know these things. If you desire it, but you haven't yet taken hold of it, then do so now. There's no reason to delay, especially in light of our Lord's imminent return. It could be before I'm finished speaking to you today. We don't know when his plan is to return, to receive the gospel offer. We have many children in our congregation. Children, you have heard from mom and dad in Sunday schools and and from your pastor the gospel message. You've heard it so many times. You know of the love of Jesus for you. You know what he has done for you. You know he wants you to be his child. Have you received him in faith? Have you confessed your sins to Jesus and called on him to be yours? Receive the gospel of Christ and have life. Now we come to the next application, verses 18 and 19. My friends, in light of our Lord's soon return, let us also cling to orthodoxy. Let us cling to orthodoxy. And by that I mean, let us cling to every word that God has given to us. And no other word besides. Look at verse 18 with me. These also are the words of Jesus. He says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, which would be, All of us. I warn all of you, he says. If anyone adds to the words of this book, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. See, my friends, this book is not just another piece of literature. Not like the works of Chaucer or Shakespeare. No, these words, these, here in Revelation, and by extension, all of the Bible. These are the unerring, infallible words of the living God. And they are given to us by God for our spiritual profit. And so, to add words to this book, Revelation or the whole Bible, to add words to this book would be a great offense to God it would suggest to God that we think what he has given us is either not sufficient for life and godliness, or it would suggest that we think he was wrong, and his words need to be corrected or supplemented. This is why adding to what we have is such an offense. And so, friends, we have a warning here to our would-be prophets. Those who would try to claim they've received a new communication from God, It's a warning to those who would claim that they have have heard something new. Something about Christ or about God's dealings with the world or something new about the the end of the world and, and how God's plans will unfold. Listen, friends, the Apostle John was the last prophet, the last one. And Revelation is the last book. The canon of Scripture is now closed. And is perfect just as it is. It has everything you need for life and godliness. Everything. And so, if you were to go about trying to convince people that there is a new prophecy, or another testament of Christ, or another holy book to add to this holy book, Or a set of golden tablets etched with the words of God? Friend, you are condemning yourself to the judgments outlined in this book because you have added to the words of the living God. You've changed His message to mankind, and we must never do that. Now look at verse 19. We see the reverse is also true. It says, "...and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy..." God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, this is the era of so-called progressive or rational religion. See, rational religion strips out the parts of the Bible that it doesn't like and then crafts a new religion with what remains. Sometimes literally so, like, like Thomas Jefferson. You might know his story, the great Thomas Jefferson took the New Testament scriptures and literally cut out the parts that he didn't like. Pulled them out of the Bible, and then he took what was left and he pasted it together and made himself his own personal little holy book. We call it the Jefferson Bible. I've got a copy of it in my office parts he didn't like were mainly the parts about Jesus performing miracles and about heaven and hell and things like that. What he he wanted to hang on to were some of the moral teachings, like what we find in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, Revelation 22, verse 19 offers a warning to such a practice. Do not take away any of the words that I have given, he says, because you will lose the water of life. Well, sometimes we don't go to that dramatic step, but we do other things to take away the words of Scripture. Sometimes we, we will find a passage of Scripture that we don't particularly feel comfortable about, and so we'll find a way to rationalize it away. We'll try to reinterpret it to make it more palatable to our, to our tastes, or we will use pseudo-scholarship to remove it from the Bible. Listen to what one commentator for the book of Revelation wrote. I found this 2 weeks ago. He says the imagery in Revelation as well as the imagery in several other parts of the Bible seems to indicate listen to this, seems to indicate a significant role of entheogens in the visionary portions of the Bible. Translation The apostle John who penned Revelation and the other writers of our scriptures they were apparently on psychedelic drugs when they wrote that's the translation you see that's how you excise portions of the Bible say these portions were written by a rational mind these portions that I find strange they were written by a drug-induced mind and so I can pick and choose which parts I like I read an entire article this week by a man who would like to consider himself a Christian leader. He tells this story about Revelation. He says, You know, on the island of Patmos, which is where the apostle John was exiled as he wrote Revelation, said, you know, the island of Patmos had a lot of mushrooms growing. They said, John, as, as a prisoner exiled to this island, he probably got hungry, and he had to eat these mushrooms. And he suggested that some of those mushrooms probably had psychedelic properties. And so the way we got the book of Revelation is that the Apostle John was eating mushrooms, and he got himself into a trance, and then he began writing his hallucinations. And now we have it in our Bibles, the book of Revelation. But friends, as we come to the end of this book... Notice, it isn't John who's speaking, but Christ himself. And Christ says, this book doesn't come from John. He wrote it, but the information comes from me. It comes from Christ himself. And he says, if you add to the words of this book, or if you take them away, you are adding plagues to yourself and taking away your opportunity for the water of life. So, my friends, do you understand that there is no revelation from God today apart from what we have in our scriptures? There is none. And do you understand that the revelation that we do have here in scripture is both without error and all-sufficient? That everything you need for life and godliness is in this book already. It's either there in in the form of direct commands or prohibitions, or it's there by inference. You You can deduce from the teachings of Scripture what God would have you to do in any specific circumstance. And it's there in the stories, and it's there in the poems, and it's there in the Proverbs, and it's there in the commandments, and in the prohibitions. Everything you need, it's there already. And so we ought not to look for any direct communication from God today apart from Scripture. We ought not to turn to any other so-called holy book. And we ought not to dismiss any portion of the book that we have today. No, our task is to study this book and to mine out of it every single truth that God would have for us so that we can live our lives in a way that is that is wise and glorifying to Him, and even satisfying to us. Friends, when our Lord returns, we want Him to find us clinging to His words. All of His words, and nothing but His words, lest we disqualify ourselves from our inheritance. And then this takes us to the final verse of the book. The final application of the truths of this book. Friends, in light of our Lord's soon appearing, let us lean on His grace. Let us lean on his grace. Look how this book ends. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Friend, the grace of God has been with you every moment of your life. Even if you're not yet a, a disciple of Christ, God's grace has been there It's been His common grace. He's provided you with food and clothing and shelter and with friends and family and and with with good jobs and with income to meet your needs. He has provided for you in His kind, providential grace. And if you're a child of God, you have also experienced His saving grace. You've experienced the regeneration of your soul. You've been given the spiritual empowerment to live for His glory. You already have God's grace in abundance, but you can have it more and more. If you ever feel that, you've encountered, that you're encountering a situation that you can't handle, pray to God for His grace. He'll give it to you. He'll give you that spiritual empowerment you need to see yourself through any, anything that life throws at you. It's something that you can always rely upon. Something that you can always ask for more of. Something that will be with you forever and ever. My friend, our Lord is coming soon. With a firm reliance on his grace, let us live like it. Now let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for bringing us to the end of this lengthy series through Revelation. You've taught us many things in this book. And here at the end, you have shown us how to apply the truths to our lives right now. And I pray, Lord, that your Spirit would do a work among the people in this room, that he would spiritually awaken hearts, that he would would draw them to you. I pray that new disciples would be made As a result of this series, I pray that you would help your people, your church, give them the empowerment they need to live godly lives in this world. And we pray, Lord, that your Son would come. Lord, we are ready for Him. We are ready for His kingdom. Lord, bring it even today, and we pray this in His name. Amen.